0: Welcome to the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing Podcast, where we explore the hottest topics in cyber marketing, interview experts, and help you become a better cybersecurity marketer. Hello, and welcome to the third official episode of Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing, a podcast where we bring on cybersecurity marketing luminaries, amazing cybersecurity marketers, and people with interesting thoughts about the world of cybersecurity marketing to share with us all that they know. I'm your host, Gianna Whitford. Today, Maria is out sick, but you'll see her on future podcasts, so don't worry. So today we have Seth Goldhammer, who we're super, super, super excited to have on the podcast. He is the Vice President of Marketing at SpiderBat. And he has had a long career in cybersecurity marketing, specifically in product marketing. He's been the VP of product marketing at ReliQuest. He was the director of solutions marketing and also the director of product marketing at Logarithm. Also been the regional product marketing manager at Hewlett Packard. So Seth is an expert in product marketing. And after saying this, Seth, you have a degree in film. I do. You have a bachelor's in English and film studies from UC Irvine. Tell us a little about how you started there and got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it, and thanks so much for for having me on the podcast today. I came to UC Irvine because at the time they had the top writing program in the West Coast, and so I I grew up in Northern California. I had a lot of ties to Southern California, and so going to school in Southern California was was a real Easy trip for for me. I was not a familiar with Orange County, pretty familiar with LA, but certainly familiar enough that and I'm a drive away from from home, if you will. So I went to UC Irvine to study English. In my first year, I took an elective class to, for screenwriting and fell in love with it. I really actually I like the genre of writing. And UC Irvine, if you think about the location, you're in Orange County, so you're in sort of the shadow of UCLA and USC. So they, of course, are very much known for their film. Uh, studies in film school, but UC Irvine, we still have all the access to people who are making film or in Hollywood and all that. So you got pretty good access to people who were working on real movies or had been on real film sets and things like that. And so I got very intrigued into screenwriting and in the whole film production process. Ironically, what turned me away was—it's going to sound horrible—was the people. That does sound horrible. <laughs> it does. I would go to these, you know, parties with you know all these wannabe screenwriters like me, and I just I didn't get along with a lot of the people. There's, you know, the the ego, the pretentiousness. It was just just a lot of things that just kind of threw me off. And I would rather be with people who just seem much more down to earth. And my my hobby at the time was computers. So th- this is a, a funny story. At UC Irvine, the first week I got there, I'd been so fascinated to get an email account. This is 1992, just to put it in perspective. And so I've been on bulletin board systems and I, using a modem to connect with people. I was fascinated with networking and was really excited to go to college and get an email address. At the time, you didn't automatically get an email. I mean, now we kind of take it for granted. I mean, email's old news, right? But At the time, you did not get automatically an email address. So I went like to the basement of the humanities school to ask for my email address. And you didn't you didn't get to choose the the name. My first email address was EAHG one oh eight at com, And I thought the G stood for Goldhammer for the longest time. It turns out the G doesn't stand for Goldhammer. It stands for graduate oh. student. I was I was an undergrad. I should have had a U. We should call the school <laughs> you should. The funny thing is, I think what happened is, here's this guy, like the first week of school who knows enough to like find this like arcade IT department in the basement and ask for an email address. They just assumed I was a graduate student. So I actually took it as a token of honor. And so I had a graduate student email address for, for the longest time. And so it was that hobby of being interested in computers, being in networking, I took a day job at the IT department at UC Irvine and worked there for for a while. Worked at the graduate school at UC Irvine um, in, in you know setting up computers, setting up networking, setting up laptops, et etc. And so I always thought that was my hobby, and my day job was going to be writing. And it turns out now in the future, it's it's kind of vice versa. There. What I think is appealing about screenwriting and marketing, here's here's the segue back into marketing. Mm-hmm. If you think about what we do as marketers, we're writing in someone else's voice. We need to put ourselves in the shoes of likely something we don't do. We, we certainly don't do it on a daily basis. I'm not an analyst in the trenches. I'm not responding to alerts and trying to find, you know, potential threat actors in my environment. I don't do that on a daily basis. So I have to, you know, it's very much like a screenwriter. A screenwriter, he hasn't been an action star you know, who knows how to take a helicopter down with a, an RPG, right? right? So we're channeling what we think the motivation of that person is and trying to use the right words to capture how that person would describe that, that moment in time. And so there is an interesting parallel there if you think about screenwriting and marketing that us on a daily basis, we do have to do. We do have to put ourselves in the shoes of someone else and to the best of our ability, speak in their voice.
0: That's great. It gave you that great creative base, that empathetic base that you can use in all marketing. So hear that people, uh, you know, high school students who are listening to this podcast. Go into film. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you have this, uh, you know, your background in film, but you've been grown up through IT and networking and you have made your way into this product marketing field over time, over, you know, multiple career moves. Tell us, Steph, why product marketing? Because when I was looking through your LinkedIn, which I do to prep for these, you know, it was like product marketing, like why product marketing of all the marketing
1: areas? I think when product marketing is done correctly, and a lot of organizations that maybe that's a whole discussion we we can go into. But when product marketing is really performed correctly, it's the most strategic aspect of the organization. Because product marketing, and I bounce back and forth between product management and product marketing. So I've been on, you know, let's build a product to let's talk about the product. And often what's happened in my career is because I really understood the creation of the product side, I was the best person in position to speak to how the product should, you know, who who gets the value from this product? Who has the pain point that we solve. And be able to describe that. So I've always bounced back and forth between those, those two areas. And when product marketing is really done well, you're thinking about for that organization, how are you going to speak to the value you provide? Who has the problem? When do they run into that problem? What are the use cases? You know, how often do they run into that problem? What is the persona who really embodies the individual who has that problem? And so strategically, you become the voice where now content marketing, digital marketing, all the other areas of marketing, they're piggybacking off of that messaging exercise that you've performed. And you, you've kind of put that scaffolding in place that the rest of the marketing gets gets to piggyback on when done correctly. When is it not done correctly? There's many different reasons that in organizations it, it isn't done correctly. And not to pick on any one organization. You know, This is both from my, my own experiences and from talking to, to colleagues of mine companies have different motivations we're we're trying to sell right so if you get into such a sales focused you know very tactical we need to meet the next number type of mentality product marketing can fall into the trap of just being sort of this extended sales support hmm. where you're you're building powerpoint presentations you're helping to build data sheets you're building all this kind of tactical items as as a sales engineer you're sort of an extension of like the sales engineering team you're also not taking a proactive stance so For product marketing to be strategic, you need to be proactive. If you're only being responsive to what sales needs, now you're just sales enablement. And to me, that's that distinctive line. Are you really performing well for the organization as a product marketer? Are you being proactive? Am I building message matrix? Am I working with product management to understand what is happening next? So as part of the launch process, you've already thought through what are all the materials we need at a minimum. And how are we going to speak to these new capabilities? Who who is looking forward to these capabilities, and how are we going to reach them so that they understand we have these new capabilities that speak to a, a problem that they have a need that they have?
0: In order to be proactive, I assume there's a degree of of alignment that needs to be built across, you know, product marketing, and we had a, we had a previous conversation about this, right? Product marketing product management, and then product ownership. Can you talk a little bit about creating alignment between these groups and how each of these groups can function sort of like together?
1: It's a really interesting discussion because I think for each organization, they really need to figure out the roles and responsibilities. And in my experience, the role clarity needs to be really crystal clear because what I have found is that when they're not clear, you have very potentially differing motivations for everyone's trying to do the right thing. I'm not trying to pick on someone as being malicious. No, we're Everyone picking wants on them. to do the right thing.
0: Pro- all product <laughs> managers are bad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, everyone's trying to do the right thing. You know, when it comes to ego, people are going to believe themselves before they believe others. And so if you have sort of this what did they say trust is the bottom layer of, you know, the of, t- of successful teams, right? You know that the five elements of a successful team starts with trust. So if you don't have trust, then you've got a product owner who Regardless of what product management and product marketing is saying, the product owner ultimately drives what's going into engineering. You know, these are the stories. These are the user stories, the cards that engineering is literally going to take and develop. And so that product owner, in a lot of ways, holds a lot of power Mm -hmm. because they can essentially dictate to the company what features are actually going to get developed. Put yourself in that person's shoes. You're hearing from engineering, all the tech debt and all the stuff they want to go back and fix that is totally broken and if they don't fix it we can never add these other features you're hearing from product management you know these are this is what competitors are doing and you know we've got to get a leap on you know these other areas and now as a product marketer you're both trying to help influence that you're also trying to capture all right what is it that we are going to do what what are we going to execute to and so i've tried to create pods I, you know, between those three people you know product owner product manager and product marketer, and essentially say, okay, you, you three own this product. You need to work as a team. And now set up the communication, set up the objectives that you have as a team and execute to that. And that didn't work. Oh, it didn't work, okay. <laughs> no, I, I would like to try it again. I'm in too small of an organization right now, but w- when we get bigger, hopefully we can get back to to this challenge because it should have worked. I really feel like on paper, it looked really, really good. Yeah. And I think the lesson learned goes back to that role clarity exercise. Those three people who are all trying to make product decisions, and they all feel like, "Hey, I'm I'm the one who should drive this decision." And if you look at some of the decision making matrices, like Racy and Rapid, I think Rapid's a good one because the D in Rapid stands for the decision maker. And what they talk about, if, if you're not familiar with Racy and Rapid, what these are are role clarity exercises, essentially like who owns the ability who owns the influence over the decision who owns the ability to get information to help make the decision it kind of works through the whole decision making process through these little channels and it allows you to assign sort of owners to those but ultimately what i like about rapid is the d is owned by one person at the end of the day you can't have multiple people own a decision someone has to say all right we've taken all the information and we've taken all the the uh, the information from all the influencers and ultimately, now it's either yes, we're going to build the feature in this way, or we're not going to build the feature, or we're going to build the feature in phase one, and we're not going to do it. You know, someone has to make that decision. And when when I made a team and told the team they had that responsibility, then it essentially the loudest voice end up making that decision mm. rather than the the collective.
0: If you were to rebuild this pod again and you wanted to make sure one person was the decision-maker on X, what would you do in order to allocate the, that decision-making out to the roles?
1: Great question. I believe that the product manager ultimately owns the decision. Hmm. The product owner is trying to figure out how are we going to now execute against that decision across our iterations? You know, what, what user cards go where to help execute to that? And the product marketer is both helping to influence, not necessarily are we going to build that feature, but now how does that feature really get presented? And with that, there could be changes to the actual requirements of that feature based on how are we going to present it? How are people going to access, experience this this capability set? And so I, I feel there's a product marketer becomes an influencer. I think product owner becomes the execution point towards it. But I ultimately do think, and I know I'm on a marketing podcast, I'm going to say that it is the product manager who ultimately owns that that decision.
0: That's okay. I was lying when we were saying you're we anti-product management earlier. Um, yeah. So, and it's good. It's good to know because for anyone who's in a leadership role who's setting up these teams you can use this as a guideline. And now we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors and producers, Your Valley Media. Chris Cochran and Ron Eddings run an amazing studio here, which produces not only the Breaking Through and Cybersecurity Marketing Podcast, but a bunch of other shows that you're going to want to listen to as well. So all these shows plus more, and then on top of that, probably even more coming soon, are available to look at, listen to and sponsor at HackerValley.com. Make sure you go over there and say, hey, Gianna and Maria said I should come check out your website, listen to your shows and uh, sponsor a podcast or two. Thanks. So you're at SpiderBat. Bats a startup, small team. Yes. How many How many people work at SpiderBat? we 13. 13, yay! Yeah, 30
1: dozen, yes. So how are
0: you doing this at your company? Because you just said, right, like product owner, product manager, product marketing. A lot of companies listening may be small, like uh, similar size startups, etc. There might not be a product owner. How do you see this working on smaller teams?
1: What's interesting is so we're we're a virtual company. Nice. We do not have a headquarters. we there's no office to go into. In fact, what's funny is Mark and Brian, who started Spider-Bat, they made that decision even before COVID that this was going to be a virtual company. Because they they've been, if you think I've been in cybersecurity for a long time, they've been in cybersecurity for a really long time. And they know so many people, they have so many connections. If you don't know Mark and Brian, who started Spider-Bat, they created tippy point. So they they created the IPS space with tipping points. Cool. They've been around for a long time and so they suspected that Spiderbat would have to be a virtual company because they know so many people spread across the world yeah. right at this point it's not just you know even them mark is in austin brian's in fort worth they're not even in the same town and so it just made sense when they were starting spider we were going to be virtual so now fast forward to we're, we're 13 people baker's dozen we communicate all the time it sounds really funny the engineering this is back when we were even smaller. I think we were eight people or something like that. And engineering is meeting daily. They're doing their daily scrum. And Mark and I were the only people not in engineering at the time. So we felt a little left out. <laughs> we felt like the engineers are meeting all the time. And we're just meeting with them once a week. And we're trying to get caught up on. We have this Friday company-wide meeting with, you know, for the eight of us. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to get caught up. But they've been talking you know, throughout the whole week. Mark said, you know what? We're just going to join your meeting some people probably would hate this idea, but we love it. It actually works out really well. And I'll, I'll explain why. We meet as a company every morning. Wow. And so it's just sort of, and we're going to keep doing it until finally we're going to be big enough where we just can't do it anymore. But as a virtual company, it's a little bit of the walking into the office and you know seeing p- people at their desk as you're walking to your desk. Like We don't get that as a virtual company. So we do meet every morning and it's just a quick, check-in. It's you know meant to be like a stand-up. You know, what are you what did you work on yesterday? What are you gonna work on today? But now that we have with we have salespeople, you know, we, we actually hired our, our first salesperson, our first business development person. So we're starting to grow as, as a team outside of engineering. They're participating in this daily stand-up. And the reason why I, I bring this up is the communication now becomes for for us in terms of how are we making these feature decisions. We're still playing a bit of peewee soccer. What I mean by peewee soccer is, we're all following the ball. We're, we're making team company decisions as a company because we're 13 people. And so every morning, you're hearing about a feature that's getting created. Our UX person, uh, Ryan, who's just, just amazing, he, you know he's posting, he, he'll talk about it in the stand-up, and then he'll post on Slack, and then we can look at you know the screens he's working on. we can vote on them. And so we're using, you know our, our office is Slack. And it's it's Zoom, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so we we all are weighing in now. What's at the end of the day? So we all put in a decision. Use that example. So Ryan says something about the UX, the user experience, uh, puts a couple screenshots with his ideas. We're all gonna like throw in our two cents into that. Now someone has to take all the information and say, well, that idea was good, but we can't really execute to it, and that idea. It's just a little too out of left field. And these are the ideas we're gonna take. So ultimately someone does have to drive a decision and we're nimble enough where Ryan can say, thanks for all your information. I'm gonna go ahead and go with X unless someone has a very strong opinion why we shouldn't and we move forward. If you think about the iterative process back in 2001 when I was a product manager, you would put in market requirements and then not see that feature get developed for six to 12 months. Or even longer, and that was in a startup, and it was still, you know, you are building a virtual appliance, so you're you had release cycles. With SaaS, it's a little bit more flexible, right? Because I could push out a feature, see what happens. Like, oh, I don't know if that actually worked. Let's tweak it. And so I think the whole that that being scared of did we are we going to do the wrong thing or the right thing? I think that that eases off a bit when you truly can take that iterative process and just say, look, let's just get something out there and let's just get feedback on it. Let's go.
0: I like this idea of what you're saying is that you're accepting. Everybody gets feedback. Everybody can provide feedback, but still one person owns the decision and they feel after reviewing everybody else's feedback that they're still on the right on which way the direction they're trying to go. It's That's still the way they go. And I think a lot of marketing teams, maybe because we're nice, I don't know, We might not be that nice. You know, maybe get caught up a little bit in getting too much feedback from uh, other people outside of marketing and maybe not at places like Spiderbat, but at bigger companies where it's like, oh, the CEO is going to weigh in and oh, the sales team is going to weigh in and oh, no, 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 no. When marketers continue down the path that they're going, they might get pushback now because you've asked for feedback from others. They've given it and you're not taking their feedback. So I think it's probably a company culture thing that has to be done in order to kind of get that ego, which we were talking about before, you know, in film. Everybody wants to be the director.
1: You're absolutely right. Every organization has strong has a strong personality or multiple strong personalities. Yeah. <laughs> and to be successful, you know, so talking about, if you're interested in going into marketing, if you're interested in really any tech startup, most tech startups are driven by some strong personality, right? Because it takes a lot to get a company off the ground And there is ego that needs to be there where you're thinking, I'm right. I I am right about how to solve this problem in a way that no one else has solved it. And so if you think about that for a startup to get successful, you kind of need that strong personality on the team. But where that can potentially cause problems, I think you nailed it on the head where if you have that strong personality, it's really easy for other people to now feign making a decision. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is, you kind of throw an idea out there. Hey, what if we do X as opposed to saying we should go do X? What it does is it allows a strong personality to then make the decision for you. So instead of you saying, I think we should direct our marketing campaign and use this messaging in our marketing campaign, you instead throw out there, hey, let's do it by committee. Let's get a whole bunch of the people in. Let's get our strong personality to weigh in because if we don't, that person could potentially veto it. And I think that we all need to be comfortable with how do we work with strong personalities in a way, and this is going to be different for each organization. You know, is that the CEO? Is that the CTO? Is that just an engineer? Is that someone else on the team? You know, it's going to be different for each organization, but I think in our careers, we're going to deal with strong personalities And the way, the the better that you can effectively work with that person, the better off you will be in your career.
0: This has been an illuminating, awesome conversation, Seth. But I do want to know, what is your favorite film?
1: So my favorite film is Apocalypse Now.
0: Apocalypse Now.
1: And yeah, it's funny because when I say that, I, I watch a ton of sci-fi. I watch, you know, you could think of a lot of indie films and stuff like that. I've seen a lot of movies, of course, over my, my lifetime. But when I was in college and... You know, it was the combination of reading Heart of Darkness and watching Apocalypse Now. And I end up writing some, you know, writing some some papers about that, about of course, the the contrast between what Joseph Conrad was doing and Heart of Darkness and what Coppola was doing in Apocalypse Now. Clearly they're mirrored, but they're reverse mirrored. And so I, I oh. really fell in love with the process that Cop just the film Apocalypse Now. And of course, you can watch all the different versions. There's a great documentary about how they made Apocalypse Now, which is just a crazy story in and of itself. Like Martin Sheen has a heart attack in the middle of the movie. Oh my God. At one point they're filming helicopters and the helicopters have to go because there's an actual war that they have to go to. I mean, it's just the whole making of the movie was nuts. In addition to just the the script, the story itself is is a bit nuts. Marlon Brando in where he was in his career, that was a whole saga in and of itself. So I just fell in, in love with both the movie the cinematography of the movie. But then when you really understand the story of how that movie even got to made, I, I just, yeah, for some reason that becomes my favorite.
0: Awesome. Oh my gosh. So we will link to your paper that you wrote about this <laughs> in the show notes along with the of racy course. matrix and the other, some of the other things you mentioned. Are you hiring stuff? Some people are hiring sometimes and I just,
1: I don't have any open marketing recs currently, but, but Bat scrolling, So mm. certainly check in spiderbat.com. We have a lot of things going on with Spiderbat. We are introducing some very novel technology into cybersecurity that I'm really excited about because I really do think that Spiderbat is a breath of fresh air in terms of new innovation that really is solving some fundamental problems that we have in the cybersecurity space. And you can use it for free. In fact, we've gamified how you can use oh firebox too. without having to install or set up anything. You can drop right into a real attack on a Linux system and see what what it really looks like. What are these exploits? How are they really working within the Linux system? So if, if you are running Linux, I certainly encourage you to check out spiderbat.com. If you're in marketing and interested in what jobs we may have open. if if I haven't scared you off of trying to work with me, if you'd like to work with me, by all means, you know, hit me up on, on LinkedIn and encourage everyone to check out what we're doing at spiderbat.com.
0: Awesome. That's amazing. We're going to have to have you back so you can talk about how the gamification process of Spiderbat has been going. That's amazing. Okay, great. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll have links in the show notes and you can catch Seth Goldhammer on LinkedIn. And we'll see you next
1: time. Thanks so much.
0: If you want to be on the show, send an email to podcasts at hackervalley.com and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks so much, everybody.